0: Hi everybody, welcome out tonight. We're really, really happy to see all of you. I'm Sarah Lohman. I write the blog for Pounds Flower, um, Historic Astronomy. And this here is Soma.
1: Hey, I run the Brooklyn Brainery. We're cool.
0: <laughs> the Brooklyn Brainery is cool. And tonight we're talking all about convenience food. So good, so easy so thrifty. Here's my ode. Honestly, what I want to do tonight is I want you to leave here thinking about convenience food in a little bit of a different light. Um, You know, what does that term mean? Okay, okay. Let's talk about it this way. Hang on. Convenience food, the definition, is food that needs a little preparation, especially food that has been pre-prepared, and preserved for long-term storage. That's the definition of convenience food. It varies a little bit from there. So I feel like there's a lot of kind of rhetoric around convenience food about what it is and how bad it is for you and all of that. But when you break it down, convenience food is something that all of us use every day. I mean, how many of you have really cooked three meals a day from scratch? Really? Because I have. Not in my normal life, but as part of my blog, I often like to take on the diet of another place in time to really understand a different culture. And I've made three meals from scratch, which means that as soon as breakfast is over, I was starting on lunch. And as soon as lunch was done, I started on dinner. It's incredibly laborious when you're baking the bread yourself, when you're making your own pickles, when you are doing everything, producing it from that moment. So that's why I wanted to talk about what convenience food really is. It's really stuff that we use every day and that has changed the way that every one of us cooks. And I would challenge somebody in this audience to say that they don't use an item that's convenience food. Even pre-washed carrots from the grocery store and flour that has been sifted to remove bugs and rocks are convenience food. So where does it all begin? I would say the earliest convenience food that I could think of was pemmican. And pemmican was um, popular primarily in the Arctic, and it was a native dish made from dried beef that was then pounded into dust, mixed with uh, beef tallow, and then also kind of dried fruits or nuts could also be mixed in it too. The interesting thing about convenience food is we think about it as kind of easing women's work, you know, women providing for their families, cooking in the kitchen, but it was actually designed to help men, men in this case who were going on long hunting trips. They'd pack a bag full of pemmican, and they'd be on their way. Ditto with one of the other earliest convenience food, dried milk. Um, In dairy-making cultures like Mongolia, they would um, essentially evaporate their milk and form it into little bars like this that they could pack and take with them. Marco Polo mentions this when he's in Mongolia in the 13th century. And the origins of convenience food continue, because the first mass-produced convenience food, um, Napoleon commissioned. He was worried about the men on the front. He was worried about the nutrition. He knew if we fed them better, they would fight better. But milk, you know, a very important source of protein and other nutrients, was too bulky to carry out to the front. They couldn't keep the cows fresh. So he said to his people, can someone figure out how to make a portable milk product to take it to the battlefield? And this guy did. It says French evaporated milk. You can't see it very well. What he did, it's Nicolas Appert. And he evaporated milk, and then he put it into the bottle that you see on the left there. And then he um, put it again in a water bath, and he did it again. So he was almost like pasteurizing in an early way. So he got this evaporated milk, thick syrupy product um, that could be carried to the the, uh, battlefront. Borden's milk was patented in the 1850s. And Gail Borden, actually a dude, there he is. Uh, and, and this blog declared him one of the people who made America great. So that's a, that's a hefty title. Um, Mr. Borden there, he was on a transatlantic voyage. And on this transatlantic voyage, um, the cows were so seasick they couldn't produce milk. And as a result of that, an infant also on the ship died. So he said, shouldn't there be a way that we can preserve milk and transport it more easily? And that's when he invented Borden's milk. He, too, evaporated it. So this is specifically sweetened, condensed milk. And when you're evaporating it, you're heating it, which kills any microbes that were initially in the milk. Then he would also add all of that sugar as an additional preservative to prevent further microbial growth. Um, there he is doing it. That's him standing, allegedly, and that thing that looks like, it reminds me of, I think his name was TikTok and Return to Us, that clockwork monster. He's spitting milk out of his tummy. And everyone is drinking and is very impressed. Um, so this was adapted as, we'll put that one back up because I like that one, <laughs> as army rations in the 1860s. So it's, this milk is really important because pasteurization was not required by law until 1912. 1912. We've been drinking milk a lot longer before that law. And particularly in New York City, we were having a big problem with it. Um, if you know me, you know I love to talk about swill milk. In brief, swill milk hap- was, happened starting in the 1840s through the turn of the 20th century. Um, there was a great demand for milk. The supply couldn't meet the demand. We started producing milk in Brooklyn from cows that were being fed um, distillery waste, a fermented grain mash. This hot fermented mash got the cows really sick. And uh, they were kind of drunk all the time. They were so malnourished that they had sores on their hides, as you can see. Their teeth fell out. Their udders were ulcered. And their tails fell off of their bodies. These cows were milked literally until the day they died. And the milk was doctored with plaster of Paris and molasses for mouth texture. Um, Sometimes even just chalk was thrown in there too. And this is what was sold in New York to, to most families. They suspected even half of the milk on the market was actually produced in Brooklyn under these conditions. And very little was done about it for half a century. So if you're not upper class, if you're not even middle class, if you are a poor family living in the city, fresh milk is dangerous. But sweetened condensed milk is pasteurized. So in the 19th century, this convenience food became a source of safe milk that not only that, it was um, nutritionally, it had a higher nutritional content than milk did. It basically had twice as much nutrition in half as much storage space. And it was infinitely portable, which why is why it made sense to make it part of Civil War rations. Um, you could take it with you anywhere, you could pack it up, it traveled a long distance, it didn't take a lot of space. And this is what really helped this take off. Um, that happened in 1861, it became uh, as part of rations, And actually, Army rations at this time read like a, a roster of convenience food for the 1860s. The average uh, Union soldier was eating um, dried apples, preserved or canned meat, desiccated or dehydrated mixed vegetables, three quarters a pound preserved meat. Um, oh, and, and this, heart attack. Any Civil War reenactors out there? <laughs> no, well anyway. You would know what that is. It's essentially, it's just a flour and water biscuit baked until it's incredibly hard. So it's just a source of like basic carbohydrates. Um, And this is one of the most portable, one of the original convenience foods. And then also get this with like in the rations pickles too. So a lot of convenience food was developed because of the army, but then it was um, developed for civilian use after the wars. And convenience food, like Borden's Milk, really did help win the Civil War, because we Lincoln ordered blockades to the southern ports, so not only could they not ship things out, but they couldn't receive things like food. And the Civil War helped develop the American canning industry, too. So the Union tables were full with the bounty of the North and preserved foods and canning, and our soldiers were incredibly well-fed, while the South slowly starved to death. And the development of canning and dehydration and salting had a lot to do with that. Um, Actually, two other brands that still exist today, um, Devil Ham, Underwood Devil Ham, and Van Camp Pork and Beans were developed during the Civil War for soldiers' rations. So post the Civil War, as I mentioned, this goes into civilian use. And it becomes very important around the turn of the 19th century. Labor saving space spacing, and cost effectiveness. This was very important for people who were living in tenements. Let's say in the Lower East Side, people who were poor immigrants. Um, In fact, kind of a standard lunch, midday meal for someone living in the tenements was just sweetened condensed milk spread on bread, which is one of the snacks that we're going to try today, which to me sounds delicious. I love speaking condensed milk. We can't tell already. And I found that it has this very weird thread throughout the whole history of convenience food. I love the caramelization. I love the chalky taste. But what, the thing about convenience food at the turn of the century is that I think a lot of the criticism lodged at it today is about that, you know, you're making like a whole meal in a pan. Or I think of it as the macaroni and cheese to Easy Mac to the pre-cooked pasta with the sauce in it. You know, we've kind of like gotten to this point of just chocolate preservatives and kind of dumbed down that it's shocking. But at the turn of the century, convenience food was developed to save time, to cut out a lot of really labor-saving processes, like like jello, for example, or custard mix, or, you know, sweetened condensed milk. You were chipping off minutes in the kitchen that could then be spent with your family, relaxing, doing other things, For a woman at the turn of the century, if she could afford one servant, she would get a cook because it was the most laborious, the most time-consuming, the most drudgery of all the household tasks. So that was the goal of convenience food in this time, to take away some of that. So you had a choice whether or not to make it a pleasure to cook. So you had time to do other things. Now, not just being, oh, another thing I wanted to mention was uh, right at the turn of the century, Peanut butter was a new convenience food coming on the market. John Harvey Kellogg, he kind of really spurred this vegetarian movement on and made it very fattish. So on all the fanciest tables, as well as, oh, here we are in the 1900 kitchen. I got excited. Doesn't that look delicious? I didn't make a, a delicious slice of, like, bakery toast like that. It's, it's Wonder Bread, but appropriately convenience food. Um, peanut butter. Fanciest tables had it in canapes but it was a popular food that was really cheap. Peanut butter is really cheap. So everybody was using it, but original peanut butter had the consistency of kind of what you get from Whole Foods, but like a little bit drier. So you had to really mix it with something to make it spreadable. So they'd use cream, or they would use chili sauce, which was really popular after World War II. I'd be willing to try that. Or they would mix it with sweetened condensed milk. So convenience food had this high-low aspect Always more people who were poor ate more convenience food than those who were rich, but everybody ate it in different forms. OK, I want to read you a really cool story. So these prepackaged items kind of represented um, the glamour of American culture. So at the turn of the century, when we're going through a time of huge migrations from Europe, people are kind of looking to convenience foods as glamorous. It was representing America. This is a story, a, a quote, an oral history from a woman named Anne Cuthin. And she was a servant in Vienna during World War I. And one of her jobs was to go and pick up the American Cross relief packages, which were full of like American prepackaged convenience foods. She says, I saved all the labels, even Hecker's flour, I says, oh my God, they must have everything so good if they pack everything so good. If only I could live in this country. The lady, meeting her mistress, locked everything up. I wanted to get a taste of the sweet condensed milk. One day, she forgot to lock it up. She went to the bathroom. You know what I did? I just put the can in my mouth, and it was dripping the milk like honey right in my mouth. And one, two, three, she opened the door. I says, It's inside already. You can't get it out of me. I got a taste for it. I'll never forget it. When I came to this country, the first thing I see is those big stores. I said, there's Hecker's flour. There's the condensed milk. When I was married, one day I was shopping, and I came home crying. And he says, what happened to you? All the things I bought in the stores, what I got in Vienna and could only dream about, not even taste it. And here, I see it on the shelf. I bought everything and I'm gonna go there every day and I'm gonna buy it. I thought that was a really, really, really interesting and wonderful quote about this outside perception about convenience food. But the downside of the turn of the century is that um, processed food was easier to adulterate. And we didn't have legislation against food adulteration, federal legislation, until 1906. So if it's processed, if it's harder to identify, you could put a lot of other things in there, and ironically, a lot of the adulteration was even trying to make this processed food look more fresh. Um, coffee, pre-ground coffee was a big one that was adulterated. Um, all coffee had chicory in it. Chicory is a weed that takes coffee like. But then even the chicory was usually adulterated with um, powdered roasted carrots, powdered acorns, wheat or rye flour, or sawdust. So it was like adulteration on top of adulteration. Canned goods we were often processed with copper, particularly things like all-green asparagus spears. Now, we have copper in our bodies. Copper is good for us, but we're talking toxic levels of copper to be able to turn something green and make it look fresh and ripe and vivid right when it comes out of that can. When you look at a can of peas, they're actually looking a little dingy. Not if you cook it in copper. So that was a big problem. Um, Candy was also a huge disaster. I know, right? So this is an illustration for a specific story that happened in England, and it's so bad. Um, The candy maker wanted to, he wanted to adulterate his candy with plaster of Paris. He ended up grabbing for the arsenic instead. 20 children died. It's ridiculous, and even pretty much every day, a lot of candy was dyed with vermilion, and vermilion was often adulterated with red uh, with lead to make it red, because vermilion was an expensive coloring. So candy could be awful. But the worst of it all was the meat packing industry, which we know about through the jungle. And Upton Sinclair, he really, Later in his life, he just hated food. He always had a kind of rocky relationship with it. But he became known for fasting as a dieting trend by the 1920s. So he wanted to get into the processed food. And um, you know, basically, the factories are so large and so anonymous that one of the workers told him, just carry a lunch pail and wear old clothes, and you'll look like a worker. So he'd go to work every day and not work. He spent seven weeks going into the meatpacking factories in Chicago. And um, well, I'm going to read you a passage from The Jungle. It's about sausage. Yeah, brace yourselves. You're not going to be so hungry after this. Okay, so this is from The Jungle. There was never the least attention paid to what was cut up for sausage. There would come all the way back from Europe old sausage that had been rejected, and that was moldy and white. It would be dosed with borax and glycerin and dumped into the hoppers and made over again for home consumption. There would be meat that had tumbled out on the floor in the dirt and the sawdust where the workers had tramped and spit uncounted billions of consumptive germs. There would be meat stored in great piles and rooms, and the water from leaky roofs would drip over it, and thousands of rats would race about on it. It was too dark in these storage places to see well, but a man could run his hand over these piles of meat and sweep off handfuls of the dried dung of rats. These rats were nuisances, and the packers would put poisoned bread out for them. They would die, and then rats, bread, and meat would go into the hoppers together. This is no fairy story and no joke. The meat would be shoveled into carts, and the man who did the shoveling would not trouble to lift out a rat even when he saw one. There were things that went into, into the sausage in comparison with which a poison rat was a tidbit." So he writes that book, which he even admitted in some places was not that well written. Like, it's not a very good story. His characters are kind of wooden and one-sided, but it didn't matter because the part that he'd experienced, the part that he saw, that shit was vivid. And that book got the attention of this guy. (laughs) Right on, right? I love this picture of him. It makes me blush a little bit every time. (laughs) Teddy Roosevelt is president. And we have a saying about Teddy Roosevelt where basically he just went, stop it, I'm Teddy Roosevelt. And that was the, the creation of the Food and Drug Act of 1906, <laughs> was which was the first federal reg- regulation for our food. So, so that is the disaster of the turn of the century. OK. We get two more wars, World War One, World War II. Um, and the science behind making food is really taking off. So um, and actually interesting in World War II, there were two separate rations, M rations and J rations, mountain rations and jungle rations with two distinct menus based on I'm not sure what exactly, how, what they thought was better for you each of these terrains. And it was things like instant coffee and minute rice and more canned beef and more beef jerky type things too because it's easier to carry. And after the post-war environment, we get this golden era of convenience food because they want to take all these foods that, well, at one time and market it to soldiers and send them out to the general public. It didn't work so well at first. They did like a direct, like, here's orange juice powder. <laughs> Nobody bought it. But from orange juice powder came Minute Maid concentrated frozen orange juice. You know, this era of history, it gets a lot of shits, right? You know we see this as like just the jello mold cooking horror of embarrassing American foods. But actually, studies have shown that most women were doing a lot more home cooking than they were TV dinners in this era. That the convenience food was supplementing. The frozen peas went into the stew. Or maybe for dessert they had a cake from a cake mix or you know if mom and dad were on date nights you got out the frozen pot pies or the tv dinners for the kids it was supplementing we weren't eating as much convenience food as the convenience food businesses wanted us to but what the convenience food was asking its public and what the public was asking itself was really twofold one they were kind of accusatorily saying when has science not helped you in the kitchen don't be afraid of these new preserved foods because Well, you've got your mixer, you've got your toaster, you've got your frozen vegetables, you've got your canned vegetables, you've got all of these wonders of modern technology. And they're there to help the modern cook not hurt. But more important, I think the bigger question is this. And this is a devil's advocate question, which I certainly don't have the answer for. Is there a reason to cook? Is there a reason to cook beyond sentiment? beyond habit, beyond budget? If those things didn't exist, should we still cook? And more than that, if someone hates cooking, are they still obligated to do so? So I leave those questions to you, for you to think about, for you to debate. Thank you, everybody.
1: All right, who's excited? Who's excited about preservatives? Preservatives! Um, they're in your food and you can't pronounce their names, so we are going to learn about them tonight, so that you know what to be scared of and what not to be scared of. Disclaimer! If you've been to MSG before, you know that I love chemicals, and they're my favorite thing to put into food. Granted, everything is made out of chemicals, but the more synthetic it is, the more I like it. Preservatives? Kind of terrifying, let's be honest. So, disclaimer, coming from Science Guy. So. Um, There are a lot of different kinds of preservatives, and they preserve food in a lot of different ways. But there are three major ways that preservatives work. Number one, antimicrobials. So they fight fungus, they fight mold, they fight bacteria. This is actually a picture from some pickles I tried to make, and it didn't work out because they're covered in mold. In theory, white mold is okay, but that doesn't look okay, so I threw them away. So next up, you have, uh, I never know if this thing works. So next up, you have uh, preservatives that fight rancidity. So fats like to go rancid. Um, generally, these things are antioxidants. And so they prevent free radicals from coming in and, like, fucking up fats and setting off ketones and other bad-smelling and bad-tasting things. So they keep fats okay. Next up, you have preservatives that stall ripening. Um, or just like natural biological processes. So if you have a banana and it gets brown, or if you have an apple and you cut it and then it gets brown, all of that's just enzymes doing their thing. And sometimes you need preservatives in order to stop that from happening. So our first one, our first preservative of the evening, um, is sodium benzoate. Woo! And it, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, it doesn't normally come in bags like this when we witness it. Uh, it comes in soda bottles. Uh, sodium benzoate needs a, an acidic environment to work in. And what's more acidic than Coca-Cola uh, or anything that has dissolved carbon dioxide in it? So they add uh, sodium benzoate to it, and it prevents uh, all kinds of terrible things. So how does it work? Um, this word, which we'll abbreviate as PPK, uh, Sodium benzoate inhibits PPK, which is something that bacteria and fungus use in order to create energy from glucose. Now, if they can't create energy from glucose, what do they do? They fall asleep. They don't die because they still have a little bit of ability to keep themselves going, um, but they take a microorgan nap. uh, (laughs) And so it it prevents them from reproducing and making a lot more of themselves uh, or producing toxins or just like... Any, anything that is bad that bacteria, fungus, and mold like to do, what you can do instead is just put them to sleep, and then it's okay. But is sodium benzoate bad? Well, Harvey Wiley certainly thought so. This guy is the the, head, the first head of the FDA. Um, Sarah sometimes talks about him. He was He fed a bunch of people poison and was like, oh, you guys didn't die from this poison, so I guess it's okay to put in food. But he had a thing really against sodium benzoate. And back then it was called benzoate of soda. Um, But he originally got it banned. And three years later, uh, someone, there was like a paper that overturned his findings that it was deathly and terrible and horrible. So then it was able to be reintroduced to the the soda world. Um, But how does it work? Benzoic acid. This is what sodium benzoate turns into. Most of the time with the preservatives, the preservatives you're putting in are precursors to the things that actually do the preserving. So you put in sodium benzoate, it turns into benzoic acid, benzoic acid goes into the cells, it puts the bacteria and the fungus asleep, and everyone is happy. But it turns out there's a lot more going on in the cell or in the can than just uh, putting cells to sleep. Um, all kinds of different chemical reactions are happening all over the place. And you might end up with other chemicals you didn't start with, such as benzene. So benzene, that sounds scary, right? No? Okay, well, it should be scary because it's a carcinogen. And it's not just like, oh, maybe it causes cancer, like a lot of other things. Like benzene is bad fucking news. So you don't want to be <laughs> drinking benzene anytime time or every time that you drink coke so what happened was in the early 90s they started to discover benzene in all kinds of different bottled products it actually started off in bottled water but then it spread to all kinds of canned stuff And so they were studying it for a while and they are like where the hell is all this benzene coming from and they didn't think like oh we're putting benzoic acid in here clearly these first four letters are related to each other but it turns out that vitamin C or ascorbic acid combines with benzoic acid and turns into benzene, which is terrible. So if, if you're people who are producing cans of soda, you're like, all right, so we're giving people cancer with benzene, how are we going to solve this problem? The answer is not take sodium benzoate out of the container. It's to put another preservative in, which is EDTA, which kind of captures heavy metals and causes them to not be consumed by your body. Um, But sometimes they also, sometimes they took them out, sometimes they left them in. Uh, But the major thing is heat and light speed up the creation of benzene in a given can of soda. Um, So if you go to a bodega that doesn't have air conditioning and they leave all their stuff out on the shelf in the light and it's like clear containers of whatever cola, you're probably gonna die immediately. But if you keep all of your soda in the fridge, in the dark, you'll probably be okay. But how much benzene is actually in it? So, the biggest amount of benzene they ever found in anything, 30 micrograms in a single can of soda. I forget how many parts per million that is, uh but measuring sticks. One, if you fill your, uh, your car with gas, three times, you're probably getting about 30 micrograms of benzene in your body. Who here has a car? Yeah, that's right, like nobody. Number two, if you smoke one seventh of a cigarette, you get 30 micrograms of benzene. Who here smokes cigarettes? Wow, congratulations, everybody. So then number three, city living. If you're in a city for three and a half hours, you get 30 (laughs) micrograms of benzene into your body. I'm very sorry everyone who lives in New York City, but you're drinking poison soda all the time. (laughs) So what happened with all of this? So Coca-Cola, as far as I know, no longer has sodium benzoate in it. But Fanta, Sprite, and Dr. Pepper still do. And you say, why would they do that? And the answer is, according to Coca-Cola, there's too much juice in those beverages to use anything else. I don't know about you, but when I think of Fanta Sprite and Dr. Pepper, I don't think this is a juice beverage, but according to Coca-Cola, it's a big deal. So ruling on sodium benzoate, I think that the, the sugars and the acids that are in sodas are probably generally worse for you than any possible benzene, and the numbers that I quoted before are the worst can that they ever found, they, science in general. Um, in the history of the world so generally there's really not benzene in things you're drinking but if there was uh, you're fucking yourself anyway by living in New York City so I think you'll be okay but it's your call next up sulfites who's heard of sulfites who shops for wine yeah sodium dioxide potassium metabisulfate sodium metabisulfate these have cool names anytime you see anything that has sulf in it it's probably a sulfite who here would like to spell sulfur with a PH? Science disagrees with you, S-U-L-P-H-U-R instead of S-U-L-F-U-R. Apparently a bunch of scientists got together in 1990 and then in 2000 and they were like, nope, we're spelling with an F. And that's how American America rules the world. So, The reason why sulfites are awesome is because they do everything that you could ever want a preservative to do. Uh, They're antimicrobial, they're antioxidants, they prevent fat from going rancid, and they also prevent enzymatic action. So if you have anything that's trying to do anything, you put sulfur on it and it stops. Where do you want that to happen? With wine. So wine is really, really fragile. Wine is a fragile flower. Um, When you put sulfites in it, it extends shelf life and it preserves the flavor. And the thing is, is like, when I say wine is fragile, like it's super true because the way you make it is by letting a bunch of stuff sit around with microorganisms in it for a long time. Then you put it on a bottle and you try to sell it in a few months. If you didn't put sulfites in a white wine, you would have to sell it within six months or else the wine would start to go bad. Um, and by go bad, I just mean it would start to taste off. But who wants to buy off wines? Nobody. So... You're like, white wine, I don't care about white wine, I care about red wine. Because I was talking to my friend and my friend was saying that there are so many sulfites in red wine and I drink it and I get a hangover the next day and it's terrible and that friend is full of shit because there are actually way fewer sulfites in red wine than in white wine. Red wine, this is parts per million. Red wine has 150 parts per million. White wine has about a 210 parts per million sulfites, and sweet wines have 350 parts per million. So if you don't like sulfites, don't drink sweet wine, drink red wine. The reason why red wines can get away with this is because they have a lot of tannins in them, and tannins act as antimicrobials. So instead of having to put all the sulfites in there, you just let the tannins do their thing. So when you buy wine... uh, when you buy wine, you always see no sulfites added or contain sulfites or all kinds of stuff like this. And what does that really mean? Well, A, sulfites are in there no matter what. Because as a byproduct of the yeast eating up sugars, they do spit out sulfites. So even if you get a wine that says contains no sulfites, what that actually means is this contains less than X amount of sulfites, X being set by the government. Um, and then there's, <laughs> there's a fun thing. Well, okay, here's how it works. So... You make the wine, before you put it in the bottle, you add the sulfites. And the sulfites protect it from having the yeast start working again, foreign yeast from start working, protects the flavor, blah, blah, blah. So it happens in between the wine stage and the bottling stage. So if you add this to a wine, if you add sulfites to a wine, it's not organic anymore. But if you look at wine labels, you see a lot of things that say made with organic grapes. And you're like, that's really cool. Why don't you say you're an organic wine? And the reason is that things made with organic grapes that don't say an organic wine is because they actually have added sulfites in between the organic grape stage and the bottling stage. So I think that's kind of cheap. Other people think it's okay. Um, And another thing with the labeling is labeling is different between the EU and the US. I love to talk about The european union when i do things with food additives because they're crazy about it especially germany like they hate food additives but when it comes to wine i guess it's just france doing this but the eu has really lax standards on sulfites so there's this thing in the wine industry called like going to europe syndrome and it's where people go to europe and they come back and they're like oh my god wines in europe don't have any sulfites in them i bought all these bottles and they said no sulfites and it was awesome why does america suck so bad And the reason is, is because in America, we have much more stringent standards on what counts as having sulfites in it. So when you buy a bottle of wine in the U.S. that says, hey, I have sulfites, if you buy the same bottle in the EU, it turns out that it might actually say contains no sulfites because it has below a given level. Now, let's say that you're still scared of sulfites. You're like, sulfites are the worst. I'm sorry, but you're going to have to stop eating dried fruit. Because while wine might have 200 parts per million of something like uh, sulfur dioxide in it, dried fruit has 1,000 to 2,000 parts per million. So it's like 10 times the amount of sulfites that you would get from a wine. But why are they putting it in fruit? What color are those? Golden, Golden, thank you. Those are golden raisins. And the reason why they're able to stay being golden is because of the enzymatic Browning action has been stopped by the sulfites. So, if you ever buy apricots that look like apricot-colored, or raisins that look golden, or apples that don't look like brown shriveled husks, the reason why you're able to see this is because they are covered in sulfites. So, if you're allergic to sulfites in wine, allergic to sulfites and wine, then you're also allergic to sulfites in fruit. But what is allergic to sulfites in wine? So. Asthma. That's what happens when you have asthma. That's a rabbit. He has asthma. Has halfway asthma. So if before and after he got asthma, it's real sad. He looks strong though. So the story is: sulfite sensitivities are real. They're not actual uh, allergies because they're not reacting with proteins. But like, yes, if you are sensitive to sulfites, you are sensitive to sulfites. But You really, it's a, you have to have asthma kind of before you're sensitive to sulfites. But if you do have asthma and you're sensitive to sulfites, you can totally die whenever you drink a bottle of wine. So sulfites, yes, they are bad. But the ruling is if you don't have asthma, it doesn't really matter if they're in your wine. But if you still really don't like them, um, you have to buy really new wines or else they'll go bad or just drink red wine all the time. Um, and if you're curious about why red wine gives you hangovers, you have to go back in time to listen to my talk last month about how alcohol works. Listen or listen to the, but, but the podcast isn't up yet, is it? We have like nine That's yeah, yeah. We're like four or five months behind. This is great. So, propanoates. This word shows up with a few different spellings and a few different pronunciations. So forgive me if you don't like this one. Um, calcium propanoate looks like cocaine, just like every other food additive. But it's, it's mostly used in baking, um, and it's a mold and bacteria inhibitor. So instead of baking bread and having it last for a couple days, instead it can last for a couple weeks. If you look at the Wonder Bread that we brought today, totally has this in it. If you look at most any bread that you buy that isn't supposed to be consumed really, really soon, it will totally have this in it. But why? And it's because of this cool guy. Bacillus mesentericus, also known as rope. Now, what rope does, it's the baddest, because it doesn't just fall from the environment onto your bread and then grow on top of it. It's actually in the dough. Unless you clean your bakery really, 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 really well, you're probably going to have some rope in it. Um, So what happens is it gets in the dough, and then you bake it, which you think would kill everything, because it kills the yeast and whatever else, but no. Rope survives the baking process. So when you end up with a loaf of bread that's been baked, it's actually like a time bomb with all of these bacteria in it. And these bacteria are just waiting for the moment that they can come out and they can turn your bread kind of ropey. Like you you do this to your bread and then there are ropes that come off of it. I don't know, I'm not a baker. I've never seen it. So you add calcium propanoate to it. What does it do? Same thing everything else does. Um, puts it to sleep, but it only puts it to sleep for a little while. So after like two weeks, you'll probably end up um, having some of that bacteria start working. Your bread will start to go bad. P.S. I read a study where it said sourdough bread, because it's so acidic, works just as well as calcium propanoate in preventing uh, stuff from going bad. So if you like sourdough, that's pretty cool. Um, The thing is, it's in bread. It's in like all bread. It's in if you go buy hamburgers, if you go buy wonder bread, if you go buy that bread that has like 12 grains in it, if you buy the bread that has 18 grains in it, no matter what, you're going to find calcium propanoate in it to protect from rope. So it, it protects your bread, but does it kill you instead? So scientists did what scientists do, and they fed it to a bunch of rats. And because scientists don't screw around, they were like, no, really, we're going to feed a ton of this to the rats. So 4% of the rats diet for an entire year was calcium propanoate. That's like replacing my bottle of ketchup with the bottle of a food preservative. But at the end of that year, the rats were totally fine. There was nothing wrong with them. It was, you know, clean sailing. They were very, very happy. On the other hand, if you inject it right into a rat's brain, the rats become temporarily autistic. I don't know what that means. But that's what the internet told me. So just don't put it into your brain. A lot of people complain about headaches. There's this great website called stopkillingmykids.com, which is an anti-food preservatives website, which says food preservatives are killing someone's kids. And it's like, man, I fed a whole loaf of white bread to my kid, and they were crazy afterwards. And the thing is, If you feed a bunch of white bread to someone, yes, they will probably be crazy afterwards because it has a lot of sugar that you can process like that and the GI index is really high on it and your blood sugar will spike and then your blood sugar will crash and it's just basically bread is evil. It's not the fault of calcium propanoate. So what judgment do we pass on calcium propanoate? It's totally okay if you fed rats 4% of it for a year and nothing happened to it, you'll totally be fine doesn't cause cancer, doesn't do anything except make your bread last for way longer. Just don't put it in your brain. Sodium nitrate and sodium nitrite, these are my favorite ones. So what do they do? P.S. I'm going to use those terms interchangeably. I'll just call them nitrates or nitrites, you'll have to live with it. So they prevent botulism from growing and killing you, as botulism does. Um, The difference between a nitrite and a nitrate is a nitrate works immediately. So if, like, I have a food and there's some botulism on it, let's say this is usually used for curing meat. So if I have a sausage and I'm going to eat it in, like, a week, I would put nitrite on it in order to uh, prevent botulism for that week. But if it's, like, a dry cured sausage where I'm going to leave it out for months and months and months and months, then I'm going to put nitrate on it because the nitrate is going to break down into nitrite and then kill um, all the botulism as opposed to doing it all at once. So you can think of nitrates as being time-release nitrates. So how do they work? They inhibit iron-sulfur clusters, obviously. <laughs> you can tell that it's an iron-sulfur cluster because there are clusters of sulfur and iron. <laughs> and there's also one that looked like a pyramid, but this was my favorite. So. There are other chemicals involved in this, and one of them is nitrosamines, and these are bad news. These are a byproduct that come out of nitrites, and they cause cancer. Um, They don't look very scary. Oh, wait. Hold on. They hurt people. How do they hurt people? They cause cancer. (laughs) So the thing is, is you're like, oh, my God, I'm never eating a meat that has nitrite in it again. But I say, no, 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 no. Don't worry about it because they only get formed under certain circumstances. And that circumstance is when you char something and there are nitrates in it, you make nitrosamines. Yeah, right? That's a bummer. That's a National Geographic image. So it's real. Um, that, so basically, it's only if you burn your food that you end up with getting nitrosamines and then getting cancer. Um, so you're like, I don't burn my food that much. I'm a really good cook. This is fine. but the biggest place that you'll find sodium nitrate is bacon. So I know half of you are excited, half of you are unexcited. So I uh, like to eat my bacon like a wolf would, which means it's half cooked. But if you eat bacon like a normal human where it's like burned all to hell, then you're doomed and you're totally getting cancer. And I'm really sorry about that. Um, but because we always eat bacon, you know, burned halfway to hell, why Why would we do that if, like, why would we put nitrites on that if we need to, you know, keep living? So sodium nitrate and sodium nitrite contribute two really big things to bacon. Number one, color. So when you see a cured meat, like a ham, some hams, um, and bacon, and you see that they're pink, the reason they're pink is actually because of nitrites. There's a chemical reaction and blah, blah, blah. Suddenly it turns pink. You're happy. You eat it. You have a good time. The other one is uh, flavor. They took a bunch of, they, science in general, took a bunch of bacon that didn't have nitrites in it, took a bunch of bacon that had nitrites in it, fed it to people, and they said, what did you think? And they said, we really like the poison bacon more. <laughs> um, it lends a bacony flavor to things. I don't know what that flavor is, but people like it. So deal with cancer if you really like bacon flavor. But there's a secret trick that the industry tries to put on you. This one says, no nitrites or nitrates added. And then there are three asterisks after it. (laughs) Wow. So what those asterisks are probably pointing to is the use of celery seed. So celery seed, you'll find in a lot of bacon. And you're like, I don't want my bacon to taste like celery. But it's a secret trick because celery seed contains nitrates, which are just the slow version of nitrites. So when they put celery seed in it it's just the same thing as putting sodium nitrate in it it's just sounds less cancerful so yeah it's natural it's great it's amazing actually nitrates are, are natural and we'll get to that in two slides so historical precedent um, I was like okay I want to take I a project and the project was I have this bacon and it doesn't have this awesome bacony flavor and it doesn't cook itself. So what am I going to do to solve this problem? And a I looked I looked back to history, um, and what I found was saltpeter was one of the first things that they used to cure meat, and that's potassium nitrate, as opposed to sodium nitrate. Now, why are there all these buckets here? <laughs> well, the way that you would get potassium nitrate or saltpeter is you would go into a horse stable and you would scrape the walls, and there would be like little crystals all over the walls and it would be potassium nitrate. And you're like, well, what is it doing there? Well, horses like to pee on walls, apparently, and it would crystallize out of the horse's urine. But eventually they decided, we have to work harder to get more potassium nitrate. So what you have to do, everybody, is pee into buckets that have straw in them, and then we'll harvest the straw, and then we'll use that as potassium nitrate. And you're terrified. You're like, I don't want to drink pea or drink pea bacon. Eat pea bacon. But don't worry. They weren't just using it to make pea bacon. They were also using it to make gunpowder. So urine-based explosives, totally fine. Um, potassium nitrate is uh, an oxidizer. And you mix it with a fuel such as charcoal, for example, or in sulfur. Um, and then you end up with gunpowder. So I had an idea. And I was like, great. This bacon doesn't taste very good. It needs some nitrates, and also it doesn't cook itself. So I hatched what I like to call my gunpowder plot. So I'm going to add saltpeter to my bacon, and then I'm going to light it on fire. So A, it will taste delicious because there's nitrates in it, and B, it will be cooked without me having to cook it. I'll just be like, oh, I love fireworks, and suddenly there's bacon ready for me. So how did I do this? A, potassium nitrate you can buy it all over the place. This is actually my, my thing because I didn't want my roommates to eat it and die because I'd be really sad. <laughs> Apparently in some countries in Africa, they use it instead of salt and then it binds with, it binds with your hemoglobin so that then you can't absorb oxygen and then you have a terrible death problem. Um, so don't try to eat it by itself. But you can buy it all over the place online. Like It's on Amazon in the cooking section. It's in the industrial section. You can find it on eBay. So if you really want it, you can get it. Just don't feed it to anybody. Um, so I have an oxidizer. Now I just need a fuel. And the fuel I chose was sugar, because I have a sweet tooth. And we don't want to make anything inedible here. So there's actually this thing called rocket candy. Um, And that is a fuel that you use for model rockets that is composed solely of sucrose and uh, potassium nitrate, a.k.a. saltpeter. So I was totally following the footsteps of people who like to do model rockets. I didn't actually get my sugar from donuts. Don't worry. So what you do is you take a little bit of corn syrup, a little bit of sugar, a little bit of saltpeter, melt it down. Put it in a little mold. You let it solidify. Then you end up with a little rod that is uh, saltpeter and hardened sugar, and you roll it in bacon, like you do to all good things. I also tried to make a bacon sparkler. It didn't work. It's not in this presentation. (laughs) So I rolled it up, and there I had a bacon fountain. (laughs) Saltpeter and sugar on the inside, bacon on the outside, totally primed to be delicious. Um, And then I was like, no, I have all this leftover stuff. I'm going to make a smoked bacon bomb because I thought like a smoke bomb, I was like, this is a hilarious pun. I have to do this. But then I lit a little bit of the rocket candy on fire in my backyard and it let off so much smoke that I was like, the cops are going to get called when I let this thing off. I'm going to go to prison. This is going to be very bad. So I broke it apart with a hammer and then decided to uh, like light different parts of it on fire just so I could like... You know, get rid of it and burn it up and have a good time. And then I basically let my set my backyard on fire. Um, but luckily, I avoided having my whole backyard and my house burned down. So don't try to make one of these. So what I did do was I took this bacon fountain. That's me trying to light it on fire with the smallest lighter that you can ever imagine. I had one of those really long ones, but that apparently wasn't risky enough for life and it stopped working so I had to use one of the real small ones and I have a video for you Yay! but the first 30 seconds is me trying to light it on fire so I'm gonna skip ahead you don't get to hear the sound I'm sorry Is that amazing or what? Yeah, it was like four feet tall. It could have burnt out your eyes if you were watching it. And it's still going. Yeah, who here has made a firework that did something cool like that? Especially out of bacon. Nobody. So, I would say that was a success. Right? No, but don't clap yet because the whole point of this was to cook my bacon and it turns out that the bacon wasn't cooked at all. <laughs> like some of it was really charred and some of it was totally raw. And I was like, bacon, you were burning at like 750 degrees. You couldn't just cook a little bit for me, like just, just do me that justice. And it was like, no, I can't. And I was like, well, I'm really angry now. So I took some gunpowder I had made out of charcoal and saltpeter and I put my bacon on the ground and then I covered it in (laughs) gunpowder. As one does when they want to cook bacon very quickly. And then I tried to light it on fire. Now I was expecting the worst because I tried to make a bacon sparkler out of the gunpowder and it wouldn't light at all and it's the most embarrassing thing that has probably ever happened to me in my life. (laughs) So I was so excited. But then, that shit caught on fire like crazy. You have no idea how big and scary this was. I thought I was going to die. So then I ended up... Yeah, let's be honest. That one part that's flipped over that doesn't look cooked at all, that's what the other side of that charred bacon looks like. So, I know, half of you are excited, and then you're also repulsed, and it's just... I had the same feelings when that happened. Um, Now, everyone... What's that? thousand year bacon right just gotta uh. so so what i did was um well i didn't eat it a lot of the time people are like oh man you're gonna eat that because it's msg and all you ever do is eat fucked up stuff for msg it's gonna (laughs) kill you and so my line for that is that, that i often flirt with death uh for msg but i'm not going to go home with him because this is nothing but like Horrible chemical deposits and like charred nitrates and like I'm sorry. That's just m- not my game. I don't want to die I want to give you guys more presentations. So the ruling on nitrites is They are carcinogenic if you burn them especially if you burn them inside of fireworks um, But they do add to flavor and color. So if you really like the taste of bacon, that's totally okay but I also won't blame you for skipping them. But I will blame you if you buy something that has celery stain in it because they're trying to trick you and you're too smart for that now. So just get uncured bacon, which is basically just pork that you can buy anyway. That's not $6 a pound. So, lessons learned. Number one, Fanta sucks <laughs> because it has sodium benzoate in it and you'll die when you drink it because you'll get cancer from benzene. Um, number two, Rats love Wonder Bread. They can eat it for years. It doesn't matter to them unless you put it in their brain. Um, And then it does give them, well, it doesn't give them cancer. It just makes them autistic for a while. But basically, Fanta, bad, cancer. Wonder Bread, great, no cancer. And then you should eat your bacon rawish because that's how I like it. And I won't give you cancer. The end.